If you're listening to this episode as it comes out, but you're not a Herald Sun subscriber, we have a deal that might interest you. Take up a 12-month digital subscription and we'll send you a pair of Jabra Elite Active 65T True Wireless Headphones. How's that for a mouthful? So not only do you get unrestricted access to the Herald Sun, including my weekly columns and much more, but you also get a pair of headphones to listen to this podcast, or anything else for that matter. The deal costs $7 a week for the first 12 months. Minimum cost is $364. Conditions apply. Learn more at heraldsun.com.au forward slash Jabra. That is Jabra, J-A-B-R-A. I've read that this death zone is exacerbated by the fact that the people are queuing up to make the final ascent. Climbed with a guy, a Japanese fellow, who had no experience in using some of the most basic ascending and descending gear that you'd use in the mountains. Welcome to a bonus episode of Life and Crimes. I'm Andrew Rule. Today, we're not talking about crime, but something just as deadly. As anyone tuned into the news recently will know, climbing Mount Everest can be very bad for your health. Someone who knows a lot about that is Matthew Kitchen, the Herald's son, head of sport, and for more than 30 years, a very keen climber. Matthew Kitchen, one of the most riveting stories I've read in our paper in a long time was your first-hand account of climbing the mountain that has claimed so many lives, some of them this week. Tell us about Everest. I think more than 300 people have died uh, either climbing or descending Everest over the years. Is, is that right? Uh, well over, well over. Well over yeah. 300. So there have been a, 11 deaths in the past 11 days. Good God. Um, Why uh, is that? Well, first thing, first things first, it's one of the most inhospitable places on earth for a human being. If you plonk a a person on the summit without any acclimatisation. They would be comatose within a couple of minutes and then dead shortly after. So, um, you know, they talk about the death zone up there and that's, that's... It's a real thing. It's a real thing. You know, your body is degrading through lack of oxygen and ability to regenerate blood cells and you're falling apart, basically. And that's coldness and lack of oxygen, the two combination. It's mainly lack of oxygen. So there's about a third the amount of oxygen in the atmosphere on the top of Everest as you would get at Bondi. And then it's, you know, minus 40 to minus 50 degrees up there. Matthew, I think you know one of the Australians that got into trouble uh, this month. Yeah, Gillian Lee. I I met him last year, actually, uh, on on Everest. So he's attempting to climb the 14, 8,000 metre peaks without uh, supplemental oxygen or any drug assistance. I'm not sure what the drugs are that would assist you, but... um, so, as I understand it, this year was his third attempt, um, and he got himself into some real strife and had to be as- assisted off the mountain. He's um, in Kathmandu, convalescing at the moment. But yeah, I met him last year, an impressive guy from Canberra, really determined, good climber. He's got fantastic skills, and he's pushing himself to the limit. I mean, I personally wouldn't climb uh, to altitude without supplemental oxygen, um, but he's, he's having a crack. May nearly have cost him his life this year. I think he's a very lucky boy. Now, you talk about acclimatisation. What is it that you and other uh, skilled climbers do to make themselves proof against 
the death zone. Right. Well, acclimatizing is all about getting your body accustomed to a certain altitude. So your body will create red blood cells to move oxygen around your system. You have to do that very slowly and methodically. Let's say we start at base camp, 5,300 metres. You'll ascend three to 500 metres vertically, touch that next level and come back and rest at base camp. Then the next time you go through an acclimatisation cycle, you'll go up and sleep at that altitude, uh, rise again another three to 500 metres, touch that altitude and then come all the way back to base camp, rest and regenerate This is all cells. part of yeah. the... Of a, of a cunning plan to... Yeah. You know, an average expedition is around six weeks. So there's a week to get to base camp-ish, and then there would be a month, up to a month of acclimatising and making your summit push, which is about five days' worth of climbing to get to the top and back safely. So do foolish people try and do this faster or in a different way without preparing? Yeah, well, in fact, most of the carnage I've seen is actually with trekkers, you know, following the beautiful hiking trails up to Everest Base Camp, and they push too hard, and they um, they die. On the way up to the base camp? Just to base camp, yeah. So that's the exposure? Yeah, it's, it's altitude sickness. So they might be fit, but they're not fit for altitude. Yeah. One rule is you can't beat altitude. You have to take the time to acclimatise. What did you do to do that? I mean, you can train... You're, uh, for fitness and endurance, fitness, endurance and strength, that all makes for a much uh, happier climb if you're you know, in good condition. But there's nothing that I can do to prepare for altitude other than arrive at the mountain and spend my time acclimatising on a proper, slow, regulated system. There's no artificial means of doing it in rooms with the... Uh, you know. Yeah, well, you can. And there are, you know, there are, they're called oxygen boxes, you can train in those, but they actually only prepare you for about 5,000 metres. Well, right. base camp's higher than that already. So, okay. Yeah. And what have you noticed with the amount of sheer amount of work you had to do? You lost quite a bit of weight or yeah. on the actual ascent? Yep. So uh, I went to Everest and I climbed last year from the north through Tibet up the uh, north ridge. I arrived there fairly chunky, 84 kilos. So I had some extra beef on because I knew I'd lose some weight while I was there. And when I'd finished the expedition, I was 73 kilos. Lost 11 in a matter of... Yeah, five to six weeks. Okay. And have you put it back on? And a couple. And a couple. Andrew, yes. Did you see this carnage um, while you were there? Did you step over dead bodies? Did you have people point out, you know, there's a man with the green boots that's been lying there for several months or years or whatever? Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, well, green boots is on the Nepal side. um, And he he is actually a a recognisable feature of the climb and that as you reach him, you understand that you turn left and that's part of the route. Like He's an identifiable marker on the, rather morbid, identifiable marker on the climb. But on my side, on the north, I summited with 18 other people. We were the first summit of 2018 and we were strung out nicely. It was a very relaxed atmosphere and certainly not crowded. Whereas on the south side, the Nepal side, there are a heap more people there. They're queuing up there. Yeah. That, that's sort of the popular image of yeah. of Everest is from the Nepal side. Yes. The north side is more difficult? The north ridge is a very extended feature, and it means that a climber's climbing high for a much longer period of time. Okay. And if something goes pear-shaped, you know, you're stuck. Whereas on the south side, it's a steeper ascent from Camp 4 to the summit. So if you're in the poop, you can descend quickly to a lower altitude, theoretically more quickly. 
I've read that this death zone is exacerbated by the fact that the people are queuing up, literally queuing up to make the final ascent in that window of time they have. Yeah. And that it's while waiting there that they can hit trouble. Is that true? That's part of the problem, yeah. So the south side is very popular. There's a lot of in- infrastructure there. Yeah, a lot more climbing has, has been done from the south. It's obviously the route that Serbman, Hillary and Tenzing Norgay used to um, summit first in 1953. So there's a romanticism about following yep. that route. There would be a quarter to a, maybe a third the number of people climbing from the north, from the Chinese side, which right. I attempted. Which you did. Which I did, yeah. yeah. I had actually attempted in 2005 up the south route. Yeah. And uh, we, we didn't make it because of a couple of factors. An avalanche wiped out our camp one. Um, we didn't lose any people, but we lost a lot of equipment. And there were a couple of other fatalities. A Russian guy and an American were killed in that. It put the slows on our expedition. Avalanches are the most dangerous feature of the... Yeah, I mean, they're, they're pretty unpredictable at times. And um, in this case... Nothing had fallen from that part of Everest in uh, 40 years. Is that right? Bang, out of the blue. That's bad luck. It was, it was, uh, yeah, it was a rough night. We, we could hear the uh, debris coming down the mountain. It, was, it sounded like every helicopter in the Vietnam War was in the Western Coombe. It was very loud. Would that be the most frightening experience of your life? Yeah, it was pretty... It's up there. Yeah, yeah. compared with... I took a tumble on a um, mountain, nearby mountain called uh, Amad Ablam in 2003, I think it was, right where a few days earlier a German and Sherpa had um, fallen off the mountain. They'd clipped into some old rope and uh, plunged to their deaths, uh, 600 to 800 metres. And I was being extra careful at that point, descending the mountain, but caught a crampon and over I went. But I was attached to a safety line, but I was upside down with 600 metres underneath me and it was uh, that was pretty scary well, that would be scary yeah one of the m- most um, renowned and professional high altitude mountaineering organizations is called adventure consultants and they operate out of wanaka in, in new zealand and i know guy cotter who runs that that company is a bit distressed about the goings-on in nepal at the moment with the no big queues too popular for its own good yeah what's happened is there's been a proliferation of cut price companies yeah and so there are a lot of people on the mountain vying to get to the summit there are only a few good summit day weather windows we call okay. them and everyone's having a crack at the same time the nepali government quite rightly says that there's a work opportunity for locals so every climber must be buddied with a local a sherpa or you know lowland nepali person who has some climbing experience so it generates work which is fantastic and there's you know 30 to 40 million bucks worth of uh, Everest industry revenue and flushing around in the country that third world Himalayan kingdom wouldn't beg for so they're not going to compromise on that and therefore regulate the numbers that can go up the mountain at any one time so it remains a dangerous place for the crowds so unless the mountaineering fraternity around the world the sort of people who can afford to go there and do it, unless they self-regulate among themselves, without reference to the Nepali authorities, um, this will continue. Yeah, I don't, I don't see it changing, unless the government uh, makes a, a stand. On the other side, the Chinese, through the Tibetan Mountaineering Association, are talking about capping the numbers. They're pretty strong on um, enforcing a rule that every climber must remove eight kilos minimum of rubbish from the mountain. Companies that don't look after their clients properly will be banned from uh, running expeditions the following year. It sounds a bit strict. 
you know, for someone like me who's an adventurer, I just like the opportunity to get out there and have a crack. But having seen the, the large numbers on the mountain, some of the rubbish and um, certainly the number of deaths this year, I feel that they're probably onto something. They're probably right. Yeah. Was it hard to get the necessary visas and all the rest of it to go from the other side, from the north side? Yeah, it was pretty complex. The, the Chinese are, are quite strict about who they let in. Um, I had to. My name is Manny Karoudis, and I'm a former New South Wales policeman turned investigative reporter with a passion for missing persons cases. I'm here to quickly tell you about our True Crime Australia podcast, The Missing. In this series, I look at old missing persons cases which have all gone cold in an attempt to try and uncover new information which could help see these missing people reunited with their loved ones or any form of clue that could bring these families closure. The Missing is available now wherever you get your podcasts and early and ad-free on Crimex Plus on Apple Podcasts. Join a Japanese expedition, a team of three, because the Chinese insist on minimum teams of four climbing. Right. So, you know, as a benefit to these three Japanese guys. With your experience? Well, I made up the four. Oh, you made up the four. Sorry. Experience-wise, three of us were even. Uh, One was really inexperienced. And um, he actually summited with an extraordinary amount of support and oxygen and cajoling. And the other two didn't. Uh, They just blew up in terms of, you know, losing power at 8,000 metres. Matthew, climbing Everest is obviously very dangerous and uh, not getting any less dangerous as time wears on, ironically, because as you've explained the crowding aspect, what things did you see there and what people have you met that underline this danger? Well, um, on Everest last year, there were seven deaths. So this year it's been 11. So it's reasonably common that there's a hole. I think only in 1977 is the last time there were no fatalities on Everest. Obviously it was climbed first in 1953, so only 1977 has had a fatality-free year. Within my own little expedition, there were eight of us who were attempting the summit. We lost one guy with severe frostbite who was sent back to Kathmandu to have that sorted out. Um, my climbing partner, Lakpa, he had frostbite uh, severely on one cheek. Why is that? And why did you not get it? Well, Lakpa, he just didn't pull his balaclava across his exposed skin enough. You know, it doesn't take much to cop frostbite. I actually climbed with a, an Austrian guy for a day, and I noticed he was climbing without his big heavy mittens on. There's a lack of dexterity when you're you climbing with big mittens on and he found it easier to work his ascending gear with his hand free. He ended up being evacuated to Kathmandu where he had all of the fingers on his right hand amputated. People lose fingers regularly. Yeah, the damage beyond people dying is... is uh, considerable. Is, yeah, considerable. Uh, you've not actually suffered any losses? Uh, all your digits you have? I'm very lucky. I have had just the beginnings of frostbite on the ends of my fingers... I, I could wrap quite a nice little tune on a uh, table for a while there, oh. but, but the uh, hardness has um, worn off now. And then we had, back in our Japanese uh, expedition, we had two climbers who left at, after getting to 8,100 metres. One just blew up, lost power, and he was evacuated to hospital, and his climbing partner went with him. So out of the eight of us, four made it to the summit and back safely. And how do they evacuate those well, they're assisted off the mountain with just, you know, uh, buddies helping them down to 6,000 metres. And then it's a bit of a trek out to uh, the base camp at 5,000 
300 metres. Under their own power for most of the descent. Well, they have to be assisted, which is why so many people die in in the death zone, is that it's very difficult just to exist up there, let alone help a stricken climber get off the mountain. Like you just don't have the energy for it. Does it make you think twice about doing it again or climbing in those sort of conditions? Will you go back to the Himalayas or...? I will. Go, yeah. You will? I will. I'm eyeing off the Karakoram in Pakistan as my next big climb. But the question about fatalities and carnage on the mountains is a good one. A lot of climbers, they acknowledge it, recognise it, compartmentalise it and then move on. When I was climbing Everest last year, I saw a guy uh, frozen into the ice at about 8,700 metres. And to be honest, you, you know, we're all so stuffed. We're just trying to get to the summit. You think twice about, you know, for a split second, that poor guy. I know who he is. He, he uh, died two years earlier on the descent. There's no way of getting him out of the ice. So he's, he's just a reminder about doing the right thing. Lots of bodies up there frozen in time. Yeah. And in the foreseeable future, that, that's where they'll stay. Yes. So on the north side, I know there are 20 dead climbers at Camp 3. Chinese send up a team of people to clean up the mountain, for want of a better term, and um, they've all been put there. The cold weather year-round yeah. keeps them frozen? Yes. So they don't de- decompose? No. On the south side in Nepal, there's a huge glacier called the Kumbu Glacier, and it's slowly pushing out the rubbish, debris and dead bodies from expeditions past. So at the snout of that, that glacier now is, uh, you know, some of the old British expeditions from the 50s. That debris is popping out, but also some bodies. That's amazing. Yeah. I climbed a mountain called Cholatsi in uh, Nepal, which is near Everest. That, to me, is a, a striking tale of how badly people can make a decision that will kill them. So... This mountain's got a very difficult uh, north face and north ridge that is a fair route, but it's dangerous. Uh, And then there's a south ridge, which I ended up climbing, I think it was 2012. But while we were scoping the mountain, there were three South Korean climbers scoping the mountain as well. And they were adamant that they were going to attack the mountain up the north. And we could see that there was avalanche debris coming off the north ridge, and it just seemed very dangerous. So we packed up all our gear and went round to the south and had an amazing expedition, summited this mountain that at the time we may have been the first, but uh, more likely the second Kiwis to get up there. A few days after our summit, uh, the news got to us that the three Koreans had been avalanched off. One was decapitated, another was disemboweled, and the other one was effectively not found. And that was all because they made the wrong decision with the with good evidence in front of them just you know they only had to look at the avalanche debris coming off the mountain to realize they shouldn't have climbed that way but they went for it and they paid with their lives is there a cultural connection with some groups uh, that take more risks i actually think that a uh, middle-aged climbers i'd like to think i'm still middle-aged but i'm nudging yeah. the other end of it but you just get mature and make more sensible decisions but impetuous young climbers and I've been that person in the past will want to push to try to you know change their arm yeah, and their muscle you know, and their luck yeah. bit of a superhero you think you're, yeah. you're unbreakable and um, they come unstuck so obviously climbing Everest can be and is often deadly what is it about some 
tour operators that makes it more deadly? Uh, are there good, good tour operators and less good tour operators? There definitely are. The big international, well-organised operators, uh, they put a lot of effort on safety. They make sure that they have the world's best equipment. They're well-resourced in terms of information about the weather. They'll put a lot of resources into fixing the mountain, which means putting in fixed rope for your safety. That's an aspect of an expedition. Whereas the cup price operators, they'll take your money, but if you are not up to speed as a good climber yourself and that operator you know, gets crook on the mountain or has a fall or whatever and you're left to your own devices, you're not going to get the sort of backup that the big international operators will provide. What's the difference in cost? Obviously, it's significant. Well, I, I actually did the cut price end last year, and I paid $28,000, whereas on the other side of the mountain, my friends at Adventure Consultants were charging uh, 75000 US, so about 90000 bucks. It's an expensive way to risk your life. Yeah. Adventure Consultants, though, will ensure that the clients of all had a crack at an 8,000-metre peak that might be a little bit uh, simpler, but at least have attempted it. So there's an understanding about how the climber will operate at altitude, or they will have insisted on a climber tackling something harder, maybe a lower mountain, so around the 7,000-metre mark, but you know, have some real expertise and experience under their, under their belt before they can have a go. Whereas the cheaper operators, they really want your money, and my experience last year was I climbed with a guy, a Japanese fellow, who had no experience in using some of the most basic ascending and descending gear that you would use in the mountains. He learned how to use figure of eight descender while on the expedition, which I found very troubling. I can't help detecting that you are a Kiwi. Um, I know you've probably tried to disguise this over the decades, but were you influenced as a, an impressionable youngster by your great countryman, Thurman Hillary, I was. and his son? I was. I know his son, Peter, Peter. well, actually. Yeah. yeah. But, yeah, Sir Ed, you know, he's omnipresent in New Zealand's uh, history, and you know, he's on the $5 note. And, yeah. Um, as a kid growing up, looking out my bedroom window, I could see the first mountain he climbed, Mount, Mount Taupuanuku in uh, Marlborough the top of the South Island of New Zealand. And I was captivated by, you know, what he got up to. And in fact, a mate of mine and I, at 16, tried to climb that peak just in a pair of... Footy know, shorts. Or yeah, basically. Sand shoes. Yeah. There were some climbers up there who um, advised us that we were being very stupid. And were they frank in their... Assistance? They were very frank in the, oh, in the New Zealand way. Oh, yeah, I very, see. Very rural in their uh, I see. Um, presentation. I mean, it's a country with steep mountains that are worth climbing. Yes. And they capture the imagination. That, I presume, must bring on a generation after generation of potential climbers. Well, it, it does. It yeah. does. There's a huge okay. climbing uh, fraternity in New Zealand. Matthew Kitchen uh, is head of sport at the Herald Sun and has been a long-time... Uh, sports aficionado. I understand, Matthew, that you came across from your place of birth uh, because you were lucky enough to score a job as a football writer uh, way back in the day. I can remember this because I'm quite old. What actually happened there, Matthew? I believe it it, uh, wasn't quite as described. Yeah, well, I was a rugby nut in New Zealand, just a, a young fella, 1920, and a job came up at The Sun in the sports section, and I was really excited about the this. Sun News Pictorial in Melbourne. Yes, yeah. I was working at the Auckland. It was called the uh, Auckland Sun, a little tabloid over there that only lasted a year, and we were all disbanded and made redundant. And this great job came up as a footy writer, 
And I thought, how good's this? I, you know, young Kiwi lad's going to go over to Melbourne and, and rock it. So I turned up uh, August the 5th, I think it was, 1988. I thought I'd go out to Waverley Park and have a look at a game of uh, footy. Turned up a bit late because Waverley Park's miles away. And uh, it was midway through the first quarter. Crowd was going mad. It was Collingwood versus Hawthorne. And when I actually entered this, the ground and saw for the first time football. Australian I football. Yeah, I saw a round ground yeah, and there were with these, these tall sticks. At blokes, end. blokes running around with singlets on. Michael Tuck was there. He had long sleeve and jumper on. I had no idea what I was looking at. I th- I'd thought, never heard of Australian rules football. You thought you were going to see rugby union? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that just goes to show. And what happened next? So I went to work on Monday yeah. and uh, and explained to uh, the sports editor that I had no idea what was going on and I was put on the subs bench where you were. That's possibly so. Thanks, Matthew. It's been illuminating. My pleasure. Thanks for listening. And you can read Matthew's first-person account in the description of this episode. Access a world of true crime podcasts on CrimeX Plus, where award-winning journalists take a deep dive into unsolved cases. Every week, we're waking up to a dead woman, a dead mother, sister, auntie, grandmother. It's not good enough. From the team that brought you The Teacher's Pet, Shadow of Doubt, and Dying Rose, unlock early, ad-free, and bonus content from brand new series and flagship shows such as I Catch Killers with Gary Jubilin. One was shot in the mouth, and I thought he was dead. Another one been shot with a shotgun and I got the overspray. Search for Crimex Plus on Apple Podcasts to start digging deep into the world of true crime.